action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. By this poetical description, you may perceive that my ambition is not only to be empress, but authoress of a whole world, and that the worlds I have made, both the blazing and the other philosophical world, mentioned in the latter part of this description, are framed and composed of the most pure, that is, the rational parts of matter, which are the parts of my mind, which creation was more easily and suddenly effected than the conquests of the two famous monarchs of the world, Alexander and Caesar. Neither have I made such disturbances and caused so many dissolutions of particulars, otherwise named deaths, as they did. For I have destroyed but some few men in a little boat, which died through the extremity of the cold, and that by the hand of justice, which was necessitated to punish their crime of stealing away a young and beauteous lady. And in the formation of those worlds I take more delight and glory than ever Alexander or Caesar did in conquering this terrestrial world. And though I have made my blazing world a peaceable world, allowing it but one religion, one language, and one government, yet could I take another world as full of factions, divisions, and wars as this is of peace and tranquility. And the rational figures of my mind might express as much courage to fight as Hector and Achilles had, and be as wise as Nestor, as eloquent as Ulysses, and as beautiful as Helen. But I, esteeming peace before war, wit before policy, honesty before beauty, instead of the figures of Alexander, Caesar, Hector, Achilles, Nestor, Ulysses, Helen, etc., choose rather the figure of honest Margaret Newcastle, which now I would not change for all this terrestrial world. And if any should like the world I have made, and be willing to be my subjects, they may imagine themselves such, and they are such, I mean, in their minds." fancies, or imaginations. But if they cannot endure to be subjects, they may create worlds of their own and govern themselves as they please. Hi there, welcome to What Mad Universe. As always, I'm Adam Prosser, and I'm joined by Philip Rice. Hello. And today we're looking at, I actually haven't checked if it's the oldest thing we've looked at. Is this older than... Um, uh, yeah. No, not actually, I was thinking of uh, Rabelais. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I think that's older. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay, it is. Uh, but pretty close. <laughs> so, like, the second or third oldest thing we've looked at. Uh, but it's, uh, in many ways, it's one of the bedrocks of science fiction, actually. It's kind of interesting. It's The Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish, uh, written in 1666. We will talk some more about it when we come back right after this. Okay, we're back. Um, yeah, so the book today is The Blazing World, or the full full title is The Description of a New World Called The Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle. It was written in 1666. Uh, it was right after the British Civil War, and that is very much a uh, part and parcel of uh, what she's basically writing about. 
One thing, Phil, you've you've talked a lot. In fact, you started. Uh, you you you. Uh, I did you did you finish uh, doing your comic book adaptation of uh, the story of Lucian of? Uh... Uh, no, I I never finished that because I got busy with other stuff. I did do the first uh, part one of of two of of Lucian's uh, writing, which itself was unfinished. Right. That actually gets mentioned in this. Yes, I noticed that she called out Lucian. Uh, sorry, what's the name of the Lucian's the, the book technically? Uh, true history. Uh, I yeah. mean, that's one translation. It could also be true story or true right, right. true account, something like that. Right. But it's it's often translated as true history. Uh, right. Luci- Lucian's true true history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a bit in this where talking about other worlds, and one of them is Lucian's world of light had been um, some time in a snuff. But of years late, one Helmont had got it, who, since he was emperor of it, had so strengthened the mortal parts thereof with mortal outworks, as if for the present impregnable... Uh, it, yeah. Um, <laughs> ba- yes. Basically, uh, Lucin, one of the, wor- one of the uh, places he visits is uh, a city of lamps. So the, the actual beings are the fire, and they, they sit on candles, and they go around in lamps. It's like their, their mode of transportation. Uh, and the richer ones have bigger lamps, and the smaller ones have like poor lamps. And so here, it, there, there's sort of a joke because the uh, the person who is now emperor of it, uh, Helmont, was a uh, scientist. Um, uh, died in 1644, so uh, roughly contemporary with this. You know, a few decades before, um, the uh, founder of pneumatic chemistry. Oh, okay. So. so uh, and he introduced the word gas into the uh, vocabulary of science. Oh, interesting. Um, but sorry, sorry. So she was. Um, but that stuff about the fiery stuff. So I mean, you're, you're saying you think she was pretty inspired by uh, Lucian's true history. Well, yeah, uh, she mentions it directly there. Right, right. But I mean, like that whole idea came from Lucian's true history, is what you're saying? Yeah, it directly says Lucian's world of light. Ah, gotcha. Okay, sorry. No, I just I I was unclear on which part was hers and which was his, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. She just mentioned it, but in Lucian's, it was the the candle people. Uh, yeah. Right. And and but she made up the the idea that its new emperor was this modern scientist who discovered gases. I see. Okay, gotcha. And anyway, it's it's just interesting because like they're of a piece in terms of like their structure, in terms of the type of literature it is. Like it's the classic thing of basically what anything you might call science fiction written before a certain period, I would say before the Enlightenment, which this technically is as well, um, is this kind of travelogue that you get where it's someone goes to another world and they start talking about all the weird things they see there and how uh, fantastical it is. Usually it's, uh, as Cavendish herself says in the book, it's couched in, you know, it's a metaphorical uh, expository analysis of, uh, you know, philosophy and politics and whatever. Uh, See also, you know, Jonathan Swift and, uh, you know, there's medieval Islamic uh, stories like that. And uh, and even like Herodotus, history is kind of that uh, to a certain extent and uh, but yeah it's it's this it's this traditional thing of well I went to a weird place and I saw this weird stuff and it's this and it, it here's how it reflects on our world and it's you know it's as I say it's metaphorical but it's not always that well concealed like the, the writer often just kind of flat flatly says that it's uh, that it's metaphorical as she does here so this is part of that it's it's about a uh, girl who as the said in the beginning who is sort of kidnapped by uh, a merchant who was enamored of her who tried to kidnap her take her through to the arctic where there is a 
as it turns out, a passageway to another world, which is the blazing world. And she travels, she managed to survive. How, how did she put it through the virtue of her womanhood? She survives the coldness. <laughs> how, what was it again? I can't remember. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was something like that. It was, it's a bit like, yeah, or, or the pureness of her heart or something like that. She's able to survive the bitter cold. The others all freeze to death. And, um, she ends up in, yeah, in this other world, the blazing world. And uh, so-called because the, uh, stars are so bright at night, it's practically day. Right. Though they also have the moon. Mm -hmm. And they also, yeah, like the day, the night is virtually as bright as the day. And they also, as we find out later, they have a special fire stone, which uh, when it gets wet, it produces fire counterintuitively and it's like a power source essentially and it powers the volcanoes in the blazing world and i feel like that might be sort of tying into the blazing world also there's lots of gems and jewels and gold in the blazing world so those that's that's why it's called the blazing world anyway she's taken to the emperor like within a few pages and immediately he just proposes to her and makes her the empress of this world like with comical speed and uh most of the rest of it is her calling out to the various uh like a huge philosophical discussion uh where she calls out to like uh all the different subjects of the blazing world who are mostly animal men there are bear men there are fox men there are fly men and worm men there are jack parrot men jackdaw men spider men lice men (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, lice men, that's right. I think and there were ant men as well. There's ant men, they don't do much. Yeah, there's bear men, uh, who are the ones who find her initially. And yeah, they all... They uh, all ape men. Ape, and ape men, yes. And, and there's all, also humans who have like different color skin, like green skin, blue skin, purple, that sort of thing. And there are giants and satyrs, uh, yeah. eventually. Um, but uh, the giants being the the engineers apparently i think they were architects yeah architects sorry that's right um although they build ships later on so they're kind of our engineers too um and they um yeah all these different groups are like each is assigned to a a particular duty of like knowledge and art and technic tech technology um like the the uh the eight men are the chemists or chymists as she spells it uh because this is 1666 and the worm men are geologists is that right i think they were experimental philosophers i could be wrong yeah there's one group that's an experimental philosopher that's right there's the fly men who i think are they seem to explore meteorology the parrots and the jackdaws and so forth are the rhetorical and logicians uh obviously you know the 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 fancy speakers anyway they all have different roles in this and she uh she kind of um the whole thing is a long dialogue with them where she calls them to her and they all give her explanations for how the world works and it seems to be describing how our world works not just like the blazing world but it seems to be margaret cavendish trying to give her thoughts on like the sciences and metaphysics of the world yeah so this was actually published in conjunction uh, originally um with a uh, non-fiction science book that she wrote um something about experimental philosophy uh yeah observations upon experimental philosophy was the other volume of this or whatever yeah which is yeah. as you say non-fiction it's her her mono- monogram i guess you'd call it yeah and uh she was um b- because of her uh, status in english society um as a duchess and you know she came from a wealthy fam- or yeah noble family before that too she was able to sort of go in places that women weren't 
typically allowed in society. Like she actually went to the uh, the uh, the Royal Society. All the men of science come and speak. Right, right. And debate with each other. And she actually had some debates with some of them. Hmm. Um, Did she ever meet yeah. Isaac Newton? He would have been alive at this time, right? Uh, it doesn't mistaken. say, but uh, yeah. uh, she she did. Um, uh, so, some of them spoke highly of her. Others thought she was an idiot. <laughs> Yeah, there's a quote here uh, from quite a bit later by Virginia Woolf, who sort of rediscovered her. She, she had been forgotten for quite a bit. The vast bulk of the Duchess is leavened by a vein of authentic fire. One cannot help but follow the lure of her erratic and lovable personality as it meanders and twinkles through page after page. There is something noble and quixotic and high-spirited, as well as crack-brained and bird-witted about her. Her simplicity is open, her intelligence so active. <laughs> Fair, yes. Uh, yeah, no, it is quite remarkable when you read this and it's like it was by a woman written in the 1600 or 17, 17th century, you know, like it does, it, it's like she's clearly, you know, staking out a place uh, in, as you say, a male-dominated space. Yeah, uh, writing, science, all sorts of things. Yeah, uh, she was, uh, is considered an early feminist. She wanted, you know, girls to be able to enter positions that men could, you know, she wouldn't hold... Uh, probably common feminist beliefs in, in other regards. Uh, she was a strict monarchist and that right. sort of thing, but uh, which is espoused upon in this book as well. We'll talk about that, yeah, yeah, at some, <laughs> yeah. Try not to go on another five-minute ramp say, saying the uh, monarchy is good, actually. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, no, it's definitely like, this. see, this is what, when I, uh, I, I had a couple of uh, our pals uh, poke at me for the Neustria cycle where I sort of talked about the royals and like the freedom that the royals entertained to be closer to like a slightly closer to what we'd consider a modern progressiveness like and and i i mean what i meant by that was just that like if you were part of the nobility or part of the royalty uh you had so much freedom to do what you wanted to do that you could uh, even if you were someone who might be marginalized otherwise particularly a woman or an lgbt person you could get away with a lot more than if you were a common person basically uh because you're you're royalty and um i think you i think we see that here i think there's sort of uh you know uh she had the the freedom to learn and and uh, and and write and study and and become a you know an intellect in her own right um and i'm sure there was an element of like oh isn't that cute she thinks she you know, blah 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 as you say with the royal society and so on um probably probably ruffled some feathers I, it, it the what i've read about her it does sound like she tended to ruffle feathers where she went just she was a bit she was a bit of a uh what's the word very uh, outspoken person who just kind of if she felt she had to say something she'd say it she she also was uh quite a clothes horse apparently and didn't like to dress in like common fashions and like was very um it, it i i can't find what exactly she wore but uh, apparently she she dressed uh, uniquely mm. for the time yeah so she was a bit of a uh eccentric a grimes <laughs> no okay oh. let's not say that <laughs> tempted to say that no um but like a yeah like a you know it's it's on the one hand you want to uh, applaud her for being outspoken at her time and and it you know it it really did come with potential stigma and everything but it was also because she had the you know she was born rich and and wanted for nothing and it kind of came out in her personality in that sense but she was a little bit yeah she was a colorful character it sounds like and it's actually interesting because um she uh 
lived through the British Civil War, uh, the execution of Charles I. I should just quickly, the history here for people who don't know, I think we've touched on it a bit, uh, like for the Solomon Cain episode, for instance. Uh, but what happened was that the uh, a dispute over uh, how much power to give Parliament, which was uh, blew, blew up into a, a full-scale war with the uh, Puritans, uh, who were the Puritans are, but they were known as the Roundheads. Uh, they kind of... Um, seized control they ended up uh, seizing and executing charles the first and they basically it, it went from sort of an internecine struggle to well what if we don't have a king and we just have a parliament and um the uh, cavaliers who are the, the or the royalists the defenders of the, the the king maybe that's not exactly the same thing i don't know all the details of the civil war but they were they fought for the uh, the king uh they lost uh, of course uh, uh england was then a protectorate for about a decade under mostly under oliver cromwell and um eventually cromwell died uh the play they weren't able to hold together the 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 coalition they found in charles's son the second came riding back from france he'd been in exile in france and they they that's what's called the restoration where the the the, the monarchs uh, the stuart line was restored to the throne and Cavendish, the Duke and her husband, the Duke and Duchess of Newcastle, they apparently lived in exile uh, in France during this period as well. Um, and they, you know, it sounds like the French and other nobles of the, the world, uh, of the Europe, uh, were happily sort of uh, funding their royal lifestyle this whole time because, you know, they didn't, they, you know, it's, it's in the royals' best interest that the royals not uh, die in poverty and be exiled from their throne, right? Uh, it makes them all look bad. So they, uh, it sounds like they were able to like live without, ha even though they didn't have money. Uh, this was written after uh, the restoration. So she came back uh, and wrote this. And it's the whole story is very clearly colored by what she'd seen in the Civil War. Uh, she very blatantly says, you know, monarchy is obviously the, the well, uh, or she has her characters say uh, monarchy is the best form of government. There's a very, there, uh, we'll get into the ending part. It's like the, the body, you know, has many cells, but only one head. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, it, it sounds like another person she references in the text is uh, Thomas Hobbes, um, and it sounds like her political philosophy was pretty close to his. Like she'd she'd uh, uh, taken it from from him, which is uh, tends to be sort of you know you need strong leadership because the rabble can't rule themselves. Is is the 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 I mean that's an oversimplification, but that's more or less the Hobbesian uh, worldview. And uh, so it sounds like she got that from him as well. I mean, it's 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 not as like there's not there's no real bitterness. I gotta say in this, it doesn't feel like she's oh those stupid you know rabble they took our homes. It was more like she keeps talking about it as a civil war that tore the country apart and was bad for everyone. And um, the the actual plot which kicks in in like the last ten pages. It's a short, very short book. It's like eighty three pages. The version I read is basically all the enemies of England coming to. Uh, she, she doesn't say England. She she calls it no no um woman who. The Empress, uh, who becomes the Empress, is explicitly not from our world. She's from a different world. That right. connects into the... Uh, we should explain, like, the, the premise of this, right? Okay, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, she, she's carried off at the beginning. They go to the North Pole, and it's very confusing, but she seems to go through some sort of portal or ripple in space or something. It says yeah. the, the different worlds are joined at the poles. It, right. It's very confusing in how it's it's worded but it, it's hard not to read it these days as like 
going into a parallel dimension or something like that. Right. And I mean, it's it's also interesting because um, the idea of going through the North Pole into another world, which was often the Hollow Earth later on, um, that became a recurring thing. But yeah, they make it sound like there's yeah two worlds joined at the poles, like almost like the the two worlds are right there, and you just get sucked up the pole into the other world. I don't I don't know. How it's but it's a to tiny work. passage explicitly, like yeah. only one boat can get through at a time. Yeah. And it says you could sometimes see multiple suns in the sky at the North Pole, or mm-hmm. yeah, it's very. Yeah, so Very uh, confusingly, uh, for, for like a central idea to how the thing works, it's very um, ambiguous on exactly what's going on. But, I, well, uh, I mean, to be fair, they probably didn't have... And also, I mean, this is written in 17th century prose, so there's some, probably verbiage that isn't as clear as it could be, you know? Yeah, so uh, the, the, the lady, the empress, is actually from a country called uh, Esfi, E-S-F-I. Right. Um, and again, it's explicitly not our world because uh, at one point in the book, uh, she starts conversing with uh, the spirits of the air, and it, there's a whole discussion on how like the spirits are able to convey around, like they can't actually move unless they create a body for themselves of like a- airy material. Um, yeah, it's sort of I- but, interesting. No, no, no. But, but okay, so it's. If, but Margaret Cavendish makes herself a character in this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the empress, the empress uh, uses these spirits to, um, who go into another world and bring back a soul uh, that can be her scribe, and they pick Margaret Cavendish, the author of the story, from right. a different world than the empress's world. Yes. No, uh, that's right. But uh, what I'm saying is um, when Margaret Cavendish goes home to her country of Esfi, um, that let's describe as her country, uh, which is under siege by the other nations. And to be clear, I think it's uh, very much uh, meant to stand for England, Scotland, France, and Ireland. <laughs> I, 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 that, that's not Margaret Cavendish's home. That's the Empress's home. No, 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 no. That's uh, that's that's uh, Cavendish. She she uh, she she says she's worried about her 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 home, and she wants the um, the. Uh, no, they 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 do a brief tour of Cavendish's home in spirit form. Okay. All right. So. All right. Yeah. yeah okay. Sorry. That I I got a little confused about that. I suppose. But well. So. But here's the reason I got confused is the Empress is a stand-in for for Margaret Cavendish, even though Margaret Cavendish is in the book, and yeah. all of this stuff is it's clearly like her alternate reality doppelganger, basically. Yeah. Um, it does say they're they're it frequently says they're platonic uh, um, lovers. Lover, you know, platonic soulmates, platonic, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's very. Uh, uh, pe- people have, uh, in some some of the reviews, have point. This is almost literally a self-insert Mary Sue fanfic. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only it's not fanfic, but yeah. Well, like uh, I say, and it's just like the main character is her, and then the other main character is literally her. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, she made herself to be a friend to herself, but it's her from another dimension. But like, yeah, like it, what's going on in again? That that's passage, that's the implication we can read into it. That's not explicitly said, but no. Yeah. No, but I mean, like it's it's pretty clear to me that what you're hearing, you're seeing in that final passage, is that the Empress is like it's it's a wish fulfillment version of like what she had lived through, what Margaret Cavendish had lived lived through in the real world, of like our nation was undergoing a civil war and now it's weak and all the other nations are attacking it. So I'm gonna go back and 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 
wipe out the other nations. And he talk, uh, she talks about like, there are some of the nations that were, you know, colonized by us and they started getting, uh, r- getting too uh, full of themselves. So we had to, we had to crush them and, and dominate them basically. Like it's really blatant. No, they make all the nations of the earth, um, pay a tribute to Esfi. Um, yeah. Uh, and they do it by, uh, uh, sinking burning and sinking ship uh like the the mermen uh one of the the races of men from the blazing world use the fire stones and plant them on the um enemy ships and and burn them and then and this is like you know if you don't submit then we'll burn all your ships and stop trade then some of the lands that uh didn't use uh sea trade um still rebelled so she uh had you know bird men plant sun you know um firestones in their uh villages and like burn them down <laughs> yeah when and, it, like and when it is, rained like it would the whole cities would burn yeah and this is like flat out like the good guys doing this and it's framed as a completely good thing basically yeah and the empress uh, w- walks around with like she's covered in in jewels that glow and stuff and she walks she walks on the water because the mermen are conveying her <laughs> right and, yeah. like, she's mistaken for a goddess by everybody and completely, um, yeah, reshapes the world in her in her own image. Just makes her home country uh, the dominant power uh, on the planet and everybody else has to pay tribute to them. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, like, so that's the part where you're like, okay, this is someone who uh, was, was part of a monarchy that was overthrown by a democracy. Yeah, uh, a lot of parallels to... Um, to the Scarlet Pimpernel books. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And um, like I say, it's very blatantly like, and then we burned all their houses down so they never learned never to stop. And it's explicitly because they were sick of giving tribute to the thing. It was like, well, too bad, we're going to burn your palace down because we're the good guys. It's it's pretty wild <laughs> to read that nowadays as uh, like a, a political. But again, it, it's like uh, that was basically what England was doing uh, at the time. Um, and also, uh, she does start off the the whole book saying the first part is romantical, the middle part is uh, philosophical, and the last part is fantastical. So this is just like her wish fulfillment purely oh, on page. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very blatantly... Uh, you know, it's Animal Farm or whatever, where it's just like, I've made... And uh, there's also a long segment where, uh, as you say, they visit the Duke of... Uh, the Duchess of Newcastle's home and uh, visit her uh, her husband. And it's about, like, she writes about how her husband has had it so rough and, and uh, everything's been so unfair, but he's such a good, upright guy. And, like, literally just writing about her husband <laughs> and how mean everyone is to him and how yeah. he's such a good guy, basically. I will say... Uh... She and her husband seemed to have a very good relationship for the time. Um, mm-hmm. He said uh, she was the first person he met who loved her, him for not for his wealth or what he could do for her, but for his like moral standing and all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they they did genuinely seem to like each other. Which oh yeah, for sure. It's not common. I I feel like for. <laughs> Yeah, marriages well, at the time. It, well, uh, whether marriages at the time is definitely not true for noble marriages at the time, yeah. where you had to. It was a, it was a arranged marriages and so forth. Uh, was this an arranged marriage, by the way? Or no, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. So that's almost that's almost the the best deal if you're in the sort of middle tier nobility because you're not like you're not uh, securing. Uh, contracts between nations by getting married <laughs> but you have all this freedom from being in the nobility to do that kind of thing but yeah no this is very clear yeah to, to be clear she's very like obviously you know writing glowingly of her husband who she you know you can't can't really fake that um and uh you know good 
good for her but it's also like yeah you you were unfortunate because you were overthrown by a an attempt at a democratic society the first real not that cromwell was good either yeah no i yeah yeah it's as i was saying the other night it's like you know you kind of want to root for cromwell in theory because they overthrew the king and put in a democracy before anyone else but you know he was kind of awful too so it didn't really to uh, the irish to yeah yeah, yeah and he was a you know he was a religious fanatic and in fact one of the things that uh inspired the puritans to rise up was just they thought the king was being too nice to catholics uh <laughs> literally it was like yeah they're letting the papists in and we got to do something and throw them out of our our country like that was actually one of the instigating uh uh rallying cries of the of the roundheads um so it was uh, you know it was it was a pretty mixed bag in that regard but um, back to this uh world conquest uh there's a part uh at the end where she says um she well you read it at the beginning where she compares her uh conquering of a, a fictional world or like you know creation of uh the blazing world is like parallel to to alexander's conquering of the real world except yeah. hers didn't have any casualties except for some fictional men on a right. boat but <laughs> No, she burned down a bunch of villages and sunk ships. <laughs> like, if we're counting fictional deaths here, then yeah. then she's pretty up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She she lost track of <laughs> the full blown war that she instigated. I don't know. Unless she wants us to believe no one got hurt in those arguments. Like he do, she does say they only attack ships and houses. She doesn't actually say they hurt anyone. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't say any deaths. Possibly off screen, like the uh, I guess the. Um, uh, Elizabethan equivalent of like uh, parachutes, yeah. <laughs> you know, on GI Joe, you know, yeah. the planes blow up, but there's a parachute, so everybody's okay. Yeah, fight to the death <laughs> and like, but don't hurt anyone. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's possible the uh, the mermen like conveyed people away off screen or something, but right. that's or off off page. Yeah, um, but uh, that's never uh, yeah said. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's it is it, it it's it does call to mind the whole thing about you know one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. It's like oh yeah, there's a war. I guess some people died in that war. Um, <laughs> I was I was actually joking on uh, on uh, uh, Blue Sky the other day about how um, uh, there was a Punisher cartoon uh, comic where Punisher kills a, another vigilante who got an innocent person killed and then like a few issues later he blows up like half a block of traffic and I'm like yeah I'm sure only bad guys died in that Frank good job you know it's a, there's, there's a certain authorial uh, fiat to sort of uh, let mass casualties sort of drift off the the stage and not be noticed compared to like specifically killing an individual character you know like uh, that old joke that the the guy in uh, superhero comics his job is to say after a big superhero fight thank god nobody was hurt yeah exactly <laughs> or uh I, I'm, this is a uh, uh, uh we're getting off topic but i find this funny uh there's a uh, dub thing. Uh, one of the um, Dragon Ball Z scenes has Vegeta blowing up a building, and uh, the dub, uh, the American dub, which was for kids, uh, had him say, um, "Too bad it's Sunday. Those buildings would have been filled up tomorrow." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's but that. I mean, it does tie into the whole sort of. Um, I mean, if you wanted to get. Uh, tiresomely uh, didactic about it, it does tie into the whole monarchical viewpoint of like, well, certain people are very important, and everyone else is just kind of the is the the fifth business, the mass, uh, you know, puppets who get slaughtered on mass. But um, 
so I'm being a little like uh, hard on the book. I mean, it's uh, you know no probably no worse than most of the things uh, written before the Enlightenment. Um, oh, this is kind of this is kind of the early Enlightenment, I guess. Um, but um, I'm not sure when that's traditionally dated to. But you know, this was around the time of Isaac Newton. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, the, another thing that uh, is kind of interesting about this is um, she does explicitly write about it as a metaphor for creativity. Like, there's a point where you're at, like, and it's like this is a metaphor for her creating uh, uh, her own. Like, she has uh, it. It's a metaphor for the the process of artistic creation, and then it again becomes very literally that where she starts talking. The Empress and the Duchess uh, both start creating worlds in their mind, which is a thing they they can do. The spirits come to them and say, "Yeah, you can you could visit other worlds and conquer them potentially, or you could just create your own worlds in your mind." What? <laughs> and they do that, so they spend a few pages like creating all these different worlds according to the ideas of different philosophers, including Hobbes. And there's a bit of an implicit criticism of Hobbes in that, like, she portrays it like the war of all against all in Hobbes. So, like, nobody can actually function because everyone's always attacking each other, basically. Um, yeah, she she has a um, very strong throughout idea about um, social cohesion and prosperity comes from everybody having the same opinions. Yeah, that is one of her biggest... Uh, opinions in this is just the idea yeah. of like yeah they're it, you, it's necessary for and again this is coming from the fact that there's just been a religious clash in england of like uh not just the roundheads and the cavaliers but also all these different uh, like it was an, there was an explosion of different uh religious but also political ideas uh about how to run the place uh <laughs> that had led to the civil war and so she was kind of thinking oh everyone if everyone would just agree with each other it would be great you know yeah so the blazing world has one religion one government one um set of laws um like the entire world yeah um and when she starts uh giving jobs to these various uh types of men you know you're the natural philosophers <laughs> and so forth right um and they start disagreeing with each other and she just starts willy-nilly dissolving their societies yeah. Um, yeah. because it's causing too much strife, like just disagreements over um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's how like, matter works or what uh, have you. She more or less says like there are certain uh, science, scientific and academic discussions that lead to uh, people getting ideas that could cause uh, uh, undermine the society and so we have to be careful to stamp those out like she basically says that explicitly um yeah but like she's not against like diversity as a concept like the they these you know bear men and and fox men and and humans and you know they all live together in harmony it's mm -hmm. it's just a like she she does assign certain ones that, that she says are better at certain jobs so that's a bit problematic but like <laughs> If you're taking this as a metaphor for race, um, yeah, sort of a hopeful view, I guess. <laughs> I guess I do. Yeah, I, I'm not even. I, I I don't know whether to read it as a metaphor for race. <laughs> like, Probably I, I not. don't. I don't know if it was intended, but that way. But uh, yeah. race was still kind of a new thing, anyway. Like right. it wasn't as. I I mean, <laughs> obviously, yeah. you know, white and black people existed before, and like, you know, you. It, see somebody of a of a different complexion you'd probably comment on it but like the construction of race as we know it was being formed through you know the slave trade which was new yeah. at this point right that was yeah very very new at the point so i mean it was almost a it, it, it's almost a thing of um 
like works from the time were like less racist because they didn't even think about non-white people like it was it was they were like an afterthought almost and if it was kind of if they were like if there's if there's a black person they just comment on their skin and yeah that's it yeah it, it is you know again not to get off topic but it is definitely true that uh you know, like like that had that the racial and racial hatred as we know it had to be constructed through like economic means to a certain degree yeah but like there's there's a 13th century dutch um arthurian continuation that has like one of the arthurian knights be a moorish man of like pitch black skin and he's the hero of the story right so, yeah, yeah, yeah and this is yeah like it it's like people of color did not suddenly pop up in uh you know 1960 fully formed <laughs> anyway um but yeah so like yeah it's just a thing of uh at the time and again you see it all throughout um like fantasy pre you know uh going back beyond modern fantasy where it's just like and there were animal men and there were men with you know who wore hats on their hands and hamburgers ate people and it was just sort of to make it fantastical but also to sort of categorize people as a certain way like so i i think the different uh animal men here are meant to describe like the way different well branches of the science and academic it's really they're all academics of one form or another um i think uh the uh like the jackdaw men obviously it's kind of a commentary on people who like to talk too much and as you say if she went to the royal society she would have had this kind of uh she would have been mixed in with that element and probably similar to what we were talking about last week with or last time with uh the uh the discworld university uh wizards <laughs> being kind of a, a fa- you know the, the a, a university faculty and not able to agree on anything and being a bit pompous and being a bit silly I think uh, it's yeah. an early version of that, basically. There are, um, like, fe- females of these species, but though they're always referred to as, like, bear men. Like, uh, she she comes across, uh, at the beginning, uh, the bear men initially, and they take her into the um, um, their their city, which is, like, a, a underground cave system. Though the other cities in the world seem to be... Um, uh, she likes... They're they're often bisected by rivers, like lots of rivers in the city. Um, sometimes rivers instead of streets. Um, she she has a thing about how uh, the buildings are like no more than two stories, because anything higher than that is just too much. Right, like just modern nonsense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because... Um, yeah, a lot lot of arches, lots of pillars, lots of Roman style uh, architecture. Yeah. She even says, I think the Roman the Roman style is the grandest style that existed on Earth at some point or something like that, right? Yeah, but yeah, uh, but again, she doesn't like you know buildings that are too high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just I, it it amuses me because it it's sort of when when we create you know our own fictional thing like what do we find cool we'll put that in like that's yeah makes yeah. sense. Like I, I can't begrudge her that I do that oh, all no. the time. <laughs> it's it's it's. I mean, she's barely she's she's not even concealing it. <laughs> she's just saying yeah. like this is me creating my a world that I would find interesting or like to live in. You know, when you when you have all the the different uh, philosophers and scientists coming to her, that's it, it's not just a here's what I think is good and the good things are good. Like there is a, a portion of that where it does feel like it's like an argument she was having with academics and scientists usually the various 
scientist animal men who come to her in that segment are reaffirming Margaret Cavendish's opinions, Uh, but sometimes they aren't, although then that's when she kind of starts to say, maybe we should dissolve your... Yeah, or that's silly. Yeah, yeah. but a lot of the times what they're saying is like, yes, this is true and good, and I agree with it, you know, like, so it's not, it does have at least the flavor of a debate, of a, you know, of a discussion, you know, contradicting opinions and so forth, but it is also, it also has a bit of what I'd call the Moby Dick effect, which is, uh, Moby Dick has a lot of segments uh, where uh, Herman Melville just jumps in and starts writing about, again, natural uh, natural philosophy and biology and so forth as it relates to the whale. And he, 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 you know, as far as I know, he was not a scientist. So he'd just kind of either make up stuff or just say, like, famously he says, well, here's all the evidence that a whale is a mammal and not a fish, but I choose to believe it's a fish, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's similar in that regard. And similar to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is all about uh, Iraqi's current hyperfixations and uh, <laughs> just writing nonsense that are <laughs> yeah, well that's really well researched but still wrong at the same time somehow yeah. <laughs> well, that's what that's you know. Hey, nothing wrong with that. And again, it's it's very explicitly her ideas, and you can't uh, you can't argue with it in that regard. So like, uh, it's it, there's a cheerfulness to that where you're not like it doesn't sound pompous about it again maybe because it was coming from the perspective of a woman who had to go in and argue with academics in the royal society (laughs) um yeah um she seemed she was apparently against um aristotelianism uh mm -hmm. physics she she believed in uh atoms but that matter was like i can't i can't remember yeah it was atoms uh, are animated matter is animated by not animated by motions of souls. It's not animated. It's like, okay, apparently that was a hot topic of debate at the time. There's a lot of sort of, you know, put, putting her foot down on, on scientific and philosophical debates of the day, right? <laughs> like, yeah. this is where I stand on the story, question of whether atoms are, you know, like, uh, yeah, she, she, she uh, pokes a hole in Arist- Aristotle at one point. That's another guy whose world, who's the basis for a world she makes. And it doesn't work according to her. Yeah, it's it's very much you know angels dancing on the head of the pin thing. Yeah, which was not a a real debate. It was actually about whether two angels being both immaterial could coexist in the same place at the same time, <laughs> which is equally silly. But that's an actual debate people uh, had. Oh, I thought the point of angels could dance on the head of the pin was that it was a parody of the kinds of debates people had at those times. Like, it yeah, was, it's a parody of that specific thing. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's that there's some of that kind of discussion, and then yeah, there's stuff about the state of heaven and hell and the soul and the afterlife and what you know the spirit versus matter and so forth and can a, can two soul it, like the souls and spirits in this can possess people can possess bodies but then it's like can two souls possess the same body at the same time and there's actually a funny part in the fin- finale where uh, the empress is talking about rallying an army and they're like well we'd like to help the, the the army of spirits who've been advising her all this time are like we'd love to help but we don't have bodies uh and we could occupy dead bodies which i don't think they actually mentioned until then uh but um we could occupy dead bodies uh but you'd have to kill you'd have to find a lot of dead bodies for us to occupy and by the time we got got them all together we'd all be decaying and we'd just fall apart to ashes so we're probably not it's kind of an entertaining uh uh sidebar there even though it doesn't lead anywhere but just the idea that like they could 
get the ghosts to possess all the dead people and create an army for her to fight with. There's a, yeah, there's a, that's definitely was a thing of like, could spirits possess by, anyway, she's, she's exploring it as like a semi pseudoscientific thing, which is always interesting to me. Yeah. Um, it, it seems she was a, a believer in God. She was a Christian, but she was kind of cagey on her exact beliefs in, in regard to religion. Yeah. She explicitly wasn't an atheist, but like she didn't really talk about uh, yeah, par- uh, a lot of women's writing from the time was around religion specifically, and that's not something she seemed that that interested in, mm. like as a topic in and of itself, other than its connection with science and so forth. Well, she writes up. There's a chunk where she writes all about she writes about Judaism and and uh, Islam as fairly neutrally like she doesn't talk about like oh those like it, it's as if it's like what religion are you are you christian jewish or or mohammedan or whatever they say at the time for islam and they it's like it's a valid question it's not acted like oh these pagans have to be brought to heel it's like well they could have all these different opinions and then there's a whole chunk where she starts talking about the jewish kabbalah i mean that that was that was a thing in christian society as well i mean obviously they got it from from jewish tradition but like john d was big into kabbalah and stuff mm-hmm. and they talk about john d in that yeah john d and kelly i forget his first name who were both quote magicians of the era uh get shouted uh, out yeah yeah they, they worked together uh Ke- kelly was his um scryer i believe mm, yeah like he was a fraud but like uh d like believed he had psychic powers right yeah but they but it's just interesting that like apparently Kabbalah was popular among the academics of the time because she's writing oh yeah and, very much and so she, and she's writing about it as like she says she keeps talking about a Kabbalah as a thing like as if it's a I guess a, a framework for knowledge I don't know it's a little hard to tell from context what she means by it it's like but yeah I think that's how they talked about it at the time uh, I mean obviously that's not the way it is in traditional Jewish mysticism but mm-hmm. I, I I can't claim to understand kabbalah in any context it's very confusing to me uh mm, okay there's dimensions and stuff so i don't know yeah I, I i do like kabbalah it's kind of a cool framework but yeah it's uh oh it's it's, it's very cool i just i i don't understand it <laughs> yeah it's it's got a lot going on i've read uh you know alan moore's promethea and that's like an exploration of the kabbalah tree and i still can't remember any of it yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 a lot obviously it's Speaking of Alan Moore, yeah, I think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen by uh, Moore and um, uh, Kevin O'Neill. Kevin O'Neill, thank you. I'm I'm a big fan, so I, I that was just a my mind blanking again. But uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, the Blazing World is a huge thing, like mm-hmm. an important uh, piece of lore within this world, right? Where Prospero, who's a stand-in for both uh, John D and Alan Moore, chooses as his base of operations in, in within the the lore of the series fairyland was evacuated and they went into the blazing world various leagues throughout history get their orders from the blazing world so and it's explicitly tied into the ideas of of fiction and so rereading this it makes a lot of sense why more latched on to this book in particular especially with that ending bit that uh, cavendish wrote yeah the 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 blazing world is like a stand-in for really that's the only part more is really faithful to the original story about there are uh animal men and stuff in in it right uh, yeah yeah. it's presented in uh the league books as 3d like literally you have to put on 3d glasses to properly view these pages right which is actually a pretty cool effect but uh Yeah. yeah 
Yeah. And that's that's what the blazing means in this context. Yeah, and it's all, as I say, the world of creativity, which is, you know, central to the whole theme of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, so it's where all the fictions, you know, retreat to eventually. It's the world that can continue to exist even after the things like the purge that happens in the 1984 Big Brother government in this world and everything. So it's, uh, and in fact, uh, the Black Dossier kind of has this slow unfolding going from the very brutal authoritarian world, uh, and they they go into the more and more strange and fantastical world, and they finally end up in the blazing world. Yeah, and I don't want to give too much away, but Tempest sort of shifts a lot of that, that the last book of League of the Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, shifts a lot of that on their head, and there's a little more sinister aspect to the blazing world. Hmm. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I haven't read. I don't think I've read the latest one, so that's that's interesting. Uh, yeah, Tempest is really good. Um, it it is like the ending point for the series, and now we we absolutely Moore's retired and uh, O'Neill retired as well, but he he has since passed on, unfortunately. So, yeah, that that is the end of that. But anyway, yeah, she explicitly sets it up as a uh, a metaphor for creativity. I don't think Moore was the only one to use uh, Blazing World in one way or another either. I think it's been used by other writers as well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's been it's been uh, uh, referenced and stuff. There's a movie, um, yes, that came out in 2020 called The Blazing World. I watched it today. It has nothing in common with it. Uh, oh, really? Have you okay. seen it? No, I was wondering about that. I saw there was a movie, but I didn't know what they'd done with it. Yeah, it, it's um, in the credits. It said uh, inspired by The Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish and other dreams. It, it's like I I don't know if I liked it or not. It, it definitely it was it was a gorgeous looking movie. Great use of colors. Uh, uh, the director, who also played the the lead character in it, uh, she was obviously has a lot of visual talent. I'm not sure the narrative was all there. It's like it, it's like a horror thriller fantasy movie. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> like a psychological, like a girl who uh, lost her her twin sister at a young age, and like this is her as an adult processing her grief. Okay. Through like a fantasy world, there's like explicit allusions to Alice in Wonderland and stuff. Um, and like, uh, different, uh, people in her life, uh, represented as like demons in the fantasy world. Mm -hmm. Udo Kier is there. It's like a, (laughs) like in uh, any good fantasy world, Udo Kier is there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not this book. It's like unrelated. And the main character's name is Margaret, but that's about the only explicit connection. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Interesting movie. Definitely. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Oh yeah, uh, any discussion on whether this counts as science fiction? Well, that's always interesting to me. Um like it, it very much depends on your definition of science fiction because like like I definitely see why people call things like Lucian's True History and this science fiction because it is it, it's definitely doing the thing that a lot of science fiction does, which is just like using a fantastic world as the creation as the uh, vessel for ideas of the author, basically, and to explore different yeah. ideas. And it's also, I mean, it is literally about journeying to another world and stuff like that. So I definitely think it counts. But it's definitely true that, like, science fiction kind of, as we've kind of discussed in previous uh, episodes, like, there's definitely a, a veer in a different direction after the Enlightenment for science fiction, where it can, it can actually aspire to be, quote, scientific. Whereas up until that point, it was just like, and then magic took me to another world, and there were gods and fantasy things. Like, it's, it's fantasy by any plain definition. It's just that it's doing the kind of thing that science fiction does, so I'm happy to call it science fiction. Personally. Yeah, and I've also seen people argue that, uh, you know, it's talking about scientific ideas and yeah. debates about how what things are true scientifically, and it looks at, like, 
the use of microscopes and whether they're useful and right. that was like a new invention right right but i mean it, like if you look at something like uh, you know uh, gulliver's travels which is has a lot of similarities to this but that's not scientific at all it's not about science in the same way and yet it's in kind of the same general ballpark right where it's, i've seen it's, it classed as science fiction i, yeah, I think aspects right. it like uh, well that's what i'm saying Lu- it, 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 the the uh the floating island yeah. No, I would definitely I'm just I'm saying it doesn't have to be about the exploration of science even by the standards of the time to be considered a science fiction story is what I would argue. So Sorry, Laputa, not Lapita. <laughs> Blah. Yeah. Uh mm, Pita. <laughs> yeah, uh oh, do you recommend it at all or The Blazing World? Uh a little hard. I mean it's it's fundamental. If you want to read something that's like foundational and ties into uh, sci-fi, it's important. I I wouldn't recommend it as a book to read on its own. It is short, I suppose, but it's very well, short. She yeah. she does go on and on and on about her own. Like from a modern perspective, you're like, okay, you're just rambling about stuff that's interesting to you, and you know, you're you're very like lack of, it, in terms of world building. It's lackadaisical in that regard. And she basically turns to you and say, "See, this is this means this when I create this." <laughs> like, which kind of spoils any like immersive feeling you're going to get out of it. Um, yeah. But at the same time, that's sort of interesting from like, a, again, the blazing world is a metaphor for creativity sort of thing. Yeah. Anyway, I I can't really recommend it to the to a common... I, I'd recommend it to someone who's like, what was science fiction like in the in 1666? It's an interesting response to that. It's, a, it's an interesting curio, and it's clearly influential. Uh, but as a story in and of itself, I'd almost say just skip ahead to the last... Uh, to the second part, which is like the last 15 pages, basically. Uh, which is where the actual plot happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's not much of a a story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's just a bunch of bunch of conversations, and yeah. Yeah. Well, the blazing day has been replaced by blazing night, and it's time for our discourses to end. Farewell from Adam Prosser of the Worm Men and Philip Rice of the Fly Men. With thanks to producer and host Alex Ross, beloved of fortune, and Alex Ross who played our theme song on Water Shells for the Emperor's Entertainment. Just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot, and if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2Ss, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the link. You can also uh, follow us on Blue Sky I, uh, uh, as WMU Podcast, or Prankster36 for me, or, or Spear Hafok for Philip. So till next you let your airy spirit depart your body and enter into a higher sphere, we remain your humble servants at What Mad Universe. <laughs>